This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're episode 15, which is crazy. I'm here with Nick. We're doing our first episode together, which is super exciting. Nick was one of my first friends in medical school. One of my earliest memories of him is our first year, he would just walk to school with like a big bag of fried chicken that he brought at the grocery store. And I was like, Nick, I'm getting a little worried. I've seen you eating only fried chicken for okay. weeks now. It's <laughs> like, Nick, have you had any vegetables lately? And he just looks at me, he's like, is pesto a vegetable? <laughs> so my roommate and I had him over for dinner and gave him broccoli. And here he is. Introduce me yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank well, you. The mic that. <laughs> Thank you for that great introduction. Of course. I was worried you were going to bring up the fried chicken. You seem to always do that. Um, but yeah, so super excited. Uh, thanks, Kevin and Dr. Abrams, for having us on and letting us kind of lead this discussion together. So for those of you that don't know me, I'm Nick and went to college in Seattle and now super excited here as a third year med medical student thinking about ER, but also like I am. And so head's kind of spinning, deciding, but we'll get there. And then, yeah, we have two really awesome guests that are classmates of Megan and, uh, Megan and mine. I'm really excited to have them on. So you guys can go ahead and just introduce yourself. Emma, you can go ahead first. Yeah. So my name is Emma. I'm a St. John. I'm also a current M3 here at Rush. I am originally from Bloomington, Indiana. Went to Indiana University and I've loved my time here in Chicago. Currently thinking I am. Not totally sure. Unfortunately, I end with that clerkship, so I've not been able to do it yet. So time will tell a little bit. And I'm here with the other guest who... Is one of my first friends in med school. Well, <laughs> so my roommate, my current roommate, Vina. Yes, my name is Vina. I'm also a third year medical student. I'm from New Jersey. I went to college in Boston and um, now I'm here in Chicago. I'm also thinking about doing internal medicine, also ending on internal medicine. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, we're so happy to have you guys on the show. And I think without any further ado, we'll get started. You guys are, let's say you guys are interns and you're on call in the hospital and you get a page from the ED. And it just says 36 year old male altered sodium of 130. Really, there's only one sentence here, but I really like this alcohol just because there's so much, like your head just starts spinning. There's so many different possibilities that could be here. So we'll start off with just generally, like, what are you guys thinking here? We have a young male with a sodium of 113 and he's altered. He has hyponatremia of some <laughs> etiologies. Um, could be many, many etiologies, something you could think about because I'm on psych. You could think about substances, so certain substances would cause it. Yeah, so I think just taking kind of because they're next to each other, like the altered and the sodium level, it's easy to start trying to draw how they're connected. But I think also remembering that those two things could be kind of of separate etiologies; they don't necessarily have to be related. So thinking about causes for someone being altered, intoxication, and then you could just think kind of just systems based stuff that would be independent of the sodium so anything neuro-related uh, really it's it could be so broad as, as to why someone would be coming in altered he is he is a younger person which is notable again we don't really have like his medical history right now so he may not be in great health but that is also something that is kind of notable in that first sentence yeah definitely so i think that yeah they're really not too much to work off of in this aliquot but also a lot to work off the sodium of 113 is not just kind of low. It's like you sometimes see people coming in like 128, 129. You're like, all right, not great, but I don't know. But 113 is definitely significant. So yeah, I like what you said about trying to decide like, are these related? Are they not related? Um, because that's definitely kind of drives the way that you not only like think about the diagnosis, but also management. This is like a symptomatic versus like asymptomatic. So 
Um, anything just right off the bat that you'd want to know, like history-wise, you guys are going down to see him. What is kind of your your primary concern? What's his level of alteration? Like, is he obtunded? Is he just like not oriented to like person, place, yeah. or whatever it is? And then, yeah. Also, just you know, what were the circumstances before he came here? Mm-hmm. Um, who brought him in? Yeah, and then I mean, I talked about past medical history, but that also including like what medications is he currently taking? Do we have any sort of like substance history at all with, with this individual? Those would be pretty important. Depending on how altered he is, you might have to get in touch. I don't to get that in, but that would be kind of like first line stuff beyond just kind of the immediate question of like, you know, how altered is, how emergent is this situation? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Everyone says altered, but that's kind of what exactly does it mean? It right. mean, I don't know, anything from just like not acting themselves to just being like completely out of it. So. Just definitely being able to like define exactly what altered means in this situation. I think we're ready to move on to the next aliquot. Okay. A little bit more information for you. Um, in terms of his past medical history, an unspecified psychiatric disorder. In terms of his meds, maybe he's been on some psych meds in the past, but doesn't seem to be taking any right now. For his vitals, he's 104 over 73 for his blood pressure. Pulse is 63, 98. Respiratory rate, 19. I'm setting 99% on room air. Constitutional, not many acute distress, not ill-appearing, toxic-appearing, or diaphoretic. Um, HNT, neck, respiratory, cardiovascular, abdominal, MSK, skin, and neuro exam are all normal. And then in terms of the psych exam, he's erratic with disordered thinking, unable to provide a coherent history or past medical history, um, and speech is moderately pressured. So, some more information for you to work with. What does this new information kind of do with the framework that you were using now? Think about hyponatremia. I mean, I think, obviously, the big standout here is his this unspecified psychiatric disorder. It's a presentation that is looking a little like acute mania. And so I think that that leads me more towards a medication or substance picture with the hyponatremia. I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, ecstasy is a- He's not necessarily having symptoms of like, you know, not necessarily everyone fits the picture, obviously, that the textbook picture that we're given, but like kind of warm temp, sweaty, dilated pupils, but he is having this pressured speech manic type symptoms that you're talking about. Also, I mean, he's not been taking any medications, certain psych meds do have a tendency to cause like SIDH, which could cause hyponatremia, like SSRIs or something like that. I think if if someone's also potentially in like having some acute psychiatric event, people can also just take in a lot of, of water or a lot of fluid and that can you know to the level that that, that could cause like the hyponatremia depending on kind of what their their behavior has been like and what they've been been going through while they're having this episode so maybe we'd get um a, a water deprivation room yeah the, yeah the thing for psychogenic polydipsia <laughs> yes I, I really like what you guys have done with only two like aliquots of information in kind of honing down like what would be the most likely cause here Cause like, if someone would just tell me hyponatremia, you know, I would think like things like heart failure and liver failure and kidney, kidney problems, which are all common causes of hyponatremia. But like you guys kind of looked at the age, uh, you guys also looked at kind of the, the presentation here and, and the past medical history and have already like named things like things like ecstasy or uh, like drinking a lot of water. You, you even mentioned like SSRIs as a cause of it. So really kind of honing down just based on this information. I really like that. I like how Nick started to put hyponatremia into different buckets and traditional teaching is it's a it's a volume thing we're just terrible at judging people's volume status yeah. so it's we often now like 
focus more on labs, electrolytes to help guide our thinking. But I, I feel like this physical exam is pretty helpful in the sense that we can at least eliminate some of the big bucket causes of hyponatremia being like a heart failure. There's no stigmata of cirrhosis, the young guy. So that, that kind of directs you down one path. We'll see if it continues. And I, I think that's a good point. I think also with psychiatric patients, it's really easy, especially if they're an acute episode, to just kind of attribute all their symptoms to their psychiatric condition. And that isn't always, you know, kind of what's going on. And obviously have a number of underlying health conditions outside of their psychiatric history. But I think, yeah, I think for me, also the fact that, you know, the whole physical exam seemed pretty unremarkable was notable. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also important, like it sounds like when he came in, he was kind of altered, maybe not super cooperative with the exam. So I think always important to just kind of like take it with a grain of salt. Like, yeah, everything sounds like it's good for now, but I guess we really don't know. Did we get this exam after he'd like kind of calmed down a little bit? You know, the vitals that he has is something that kind of stuck out to me, like with a pulse of 63 and a blood pressure 104 over 73, like definitely sounds like someone that's pretty calm, not super agitated. So I guess maybe you can assume that he's, you know, just a little more kind of calm down at this point. But yeah, always just like doing serial exams, I think. And maybe the first one isn't as reliable, but being able to go back. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Like also when you're getting your vitals matter. So like, you know, could this, could this patient have been given a, a, like a drug like Cyprexa or something that would kind of just calm them down? So like if someone's reading you vitals and you're not really there to see the patient, then like, you know, if someone's hypotensive, like was this after a liter or before a liter bolus, those are all things that are, you know, they're, they're really important in terms of like how they're responding. So also something here is like, we can take these vitals for what they are, but then we, we don't know the context of it too. And I like what Kevin said about just kind of I know the classic teaching is looking at like the volume status and is this like a hypervolemic or ice or euvolemic, hypovolemic, hyponatremia. But yeah, the kind of the data and literature shows that we're not great at being able to like assess really the volume status of patients. And I was listening to a podcast earlier um, that had a nephrologist talking about a study that was done back in like 1987, where they basically just like lined up all these hyponatremic patients in front of these like really well-trained nephrologists. They're like, tell me what, like, what the volume status is. And only 40% of the time were they able to like accurately guess it. So, which is worse than flipping a coin. So I think there are a lot of like good physical exam findings that have been shown to have like really good like specificity for ruling in like an S3 is like great for if you're concerned about heart failure, but also like you can easily not have an S3 and you can not have peripheral edema and you can still be volume overloaded. So just all kind of important things that obviously the physical exam is very important and this isn't to say don't do it, but just kind of taking everything, you know, into consideration and not making a decision just solely based on that. So, so kind of going off of that, I know that we did learn like using volume status to assess it. Have you guys learned of any other ways to kind of like break down the different buckets of hyponatremia? I think like you said, the classic teaching is like, or the only lecture I've had on it is like, uh, like yeah, you know, euvolemic versus hypovolemic versus those are really the two that we kind of cover. But if we're going into like euvolemic and hyponatremia, that would be something more like like psychogenic polydipsia in that sense or which kind of fits more in the picture but that we have right now based on his normal physical exam and we don't know that it's like actually normal like you're like you've been saying mm -hmm. but yeah if he was more like hypovolemic we could be thinking of, of some hormone hormonal imbalances that could be causing it so maybe adding those on in labs like adh looking at the other electrolytes to see if he's like just depleted in general to see if it's like a nutritional status thing yeah, those are all really good thoughts. So kind of going along with that, I can't promise you we'll have all the laws that you want, but in a perfect world, what would you guys like to order now? Yeah, so I think like 
would mean was say definitely the rest of the line is very important because they i mean they did give us the one which leads you to believe that's the maybe the only one that was abnormal but yeah that was like the most notable one but so definitely want a full picture um, of that like a cmp creatinine level maybe like bmp if it's like a heart failure take picture mm-hmm. like a, a utox just for substances mm-hmm. a ua for a serum osmolality mm-hmm. or not serum you're, you're, <laughs> we knew what you meant but yeah are you guys interested in a repeat sodium sure yeah <laughs> Now that you've mentioned it, it sounds really reasonable. On. Yeah. So I got to tell you guys, I, I had a case a little while back. Sodium was 106. The glucose was 2200. Oh, and it was all, pseudo, was all pseudo-hypodatremia. I, and I'm saying that not because this is the case. I promise you, I'm giving you one hint <laughs> right now. Yeah. But it was really cool to see that. Yeah. It's the highest glucose I'd ever seen. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, impressive. 2200 is Oh my gosh. I did tell me that was possible. No. no. I, I looked up the highest one recorded was like 2,500. It's no. the highest one I think ever recorded. This guy, was, this guy was close. Wow. Oh, that's, that's impressive. It's not what you want to be known for. But no, yeah. it is not. All right. Blood like maples. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I think that's a good start in terms of the labs. I think always just kind of there's always just like this inclination, I feel like, to just order everything. But I think starting where you guys are and just getting like the really important stuff, like let's look at his electrolytes, let's look at the urine, I think are really good places to start, especially with something like hyponatremia and this guy that's like otherwise pretty healthy. So a lot of time just with like a good history, physical exam and like some basic labs, you can kind of get all the information that you need to know. So I think that's a good place to start. And that's a good segue to our next alcohol of info. And you guys did a good job. You pretty much nailed uh, most of the workup that it was actually done. So we're going to kind of give this one to you in, in like two parts. So first, we'll give you the CBC um, and then some electrolytes as well. So the CBC was nothing, nothing abnormal there. And then the sodium we had is 113, uh, chloride 82, the BUN was 4, creatinine at 0.71, calcium 8.6, and glucose was 108. So do, does this alter or change um, anything that you guys have thought of so far? Or does it not really provide much? Chloride is really low as well, so it could be like some like salt wasting, some kidney pathology. And, but the BUN and creatinine is not concerning. Mm-hmm. And then like, uh, yeah, like the, the normal glucose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're just talking about it. right. I was ready for the case to have been twenty-two hundred salt. Yeah, yeah. The glucose is normal, which. Definitely is a, a normal finding that definitely says that was right. This rise were 75,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Just got IDIG. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Ian, I think you ought to I have seen it. Looks like a creamsicle coming out of your body. Triglycerides <laughs> 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 of like 4,000. Oh, Hello. Hello, gotcha. Um, but Vina, yeah, you had mentioned just the creatinine at 0.71 and BUN, like less concern for for kidney kidney problems and i think that yeah that's definitely when you're thinking of hyponatremia and like organ system failure you know we can't from a normal creatinine we can't just say there's nothing wrong with the kidneys but in terms of like acute kidney failure to where the kidneys are not producing any urine at all or something makes it less likely um but you know there's still like a lot of information of course that we and then yeah did you yeah do we know their pH if their chloride is really low? 
So, yeah, that's a good question. So in terms of like, I can't calculate it. So I think for discussion purposes, their, their bifarc was 24 and mm-hmm. Cassium was four. Yeah, I think that's all kind of good points. And just the first thing that you want to do when you see hyponatremia is make sure that it is true hyponatremia. And so we're kind of throwing around all the other things that can make it look like you have hyponatremia when you don't, glucose being the big one. But also they kind of call that like the hyperosmolar hyponatremia, in which case you correct and you have that whole formula to correct for the glucose. And most of the time your sodium ends up being. And so sometimes people call that pseudohyponatremia. But what I've kind of learned is that's not actually pseudohyponatremia. It is truly hyponatremia, but it just corrects once you correct the glucose. But there is something else called pseudohyponatremia, and that has to do with when you have other things, other osmolds in the blood, um, like proteins and fats. And that just basically is a lab error. So it's the way that they like calculate the sodium when they're in the lab. It's way, way over my head, but basically they have to like dilute the sample enough. And then you have all these other like triglycerides and proteins and stuff in there. It can make the sodium look low when it's not actually low. So first thing you want to do is make sure that this is like a true hypoosmolar hyponatremia. Otherwise you end up going down the very wrong path. So yeah, if you are concerned that like maybe it's hypertriglyceridemia, you can get lipids, concerned about like multiple myeloma or Waldenstrom's, you can get like an SPAD. So yeah, all things to just consider once you see something like this. So I got to ask you guys a question because there is a, besides the sodium, there is a lab that really stands out there to me. Oh, and I, no, I actually have to say it's the BUN. Oh yeah. So the BUN is, is sort of unusual. Would you not say so? Yeah, I would say so. The creatinine was normal, so then I just kind of glazed over the BUN. Yeah, I, I'd say sometimes I favor the creatinine when I'm thinking about a kidney too much. And, you know, when I say BUN creatinine, which is normal creatinine and kind of fail to, to yeah. recognize that the BUN is also equally important to kidney function. There's anything about that B- BUN that seems strange to you guys? Pretty low, isn't it? Right. We often don't think about what cause, like what could cause a low B. Yeah, I know if you don't eat a lot of protein. Yeah, for them, right. I, I don't know what causes low BUN other than other than the low low protein. Yeah, it, what's his LB? <laughs> also, would be very nice to have. Yeah, and I think it helps to think about like how you know BUN arises in our blood and in the mechanisms of that. Like, so when we're when we're volume depleted, our, our kidneys like to pull the urea back into our blood. So like, you know, when we have low volume status and there's something that really high to you and you, you may want to think like, oh, this patient could be dehydrated. The kidneys are working really hard to pull in, in urea. And like with ADH, a lot of people, we, we think about water, how ADH kind of brings in water, but also the hormone also pulls in urea. So it's just something to kind of think about when we think about it mechanistically, uh, low, low BUN can, can kind of tell us a little bit about volume status as well. I think I was under the impression, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but also if there's some sort of like liver dysfunction going on, I think the way that proteins kind of metabolize, it's that it's turned into the urea in the liver. So if you have just like some underlying synthetic or metabolic um, dysfunction of the liver, that can also cause you to have all low BUN. So uh, we don't have any LFTs or anything here. So I think we can assume that they're normal and no stigmata of any sort of like cirrhosis or liver failure, but that's just, was kind of in the back of my mind as something that can cause a low view one. All right. So we got a Utox, which is negative. We got the serum osmols are 239 and reference range, reference range for that. We like them to be somewhere between like 275, 295 is kind of what we consider the limits of normal. Urine osmols 49, which is low. And then the urine sodium is less than 20. You guys want to break those down and kind of how that makes you rearrange your differential or what you're thinking? 
I know they're not labs that we get kind of frequently, um, a little more like advanced nephrology labs, but yeah, I mean, we can just start with like the serum osmol or osmolality, so a little bit lower than usual, so. And the urine osmolality should be a lot higher than that. Right. Um, and the urine uh, sodium, I'm not sure the level should be, I only remember like the fractional excretion of sodium in terms of like kidney injury. I'm not sure that this quantifies, but as as like a normal level of urine sodium excretion, should it be higher? Would you want it to be higher? I mean, probably not, right? Because theoretically you should be absorbing like almost all of the sodium <laughs> that goes right. into your kidneys. So there's so what, something what wrong with the kidneys in terms of reabsorbing water. Right. Yeah, excretion right. of lots of free water. Yeah. So ADH problem. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's, I don't know, because all these can be kind of intimidating to look at and you're like, oh, I don't remember the reference ranges, whatever. But I feel like if you just think about what you want the body to be doing right now, it's like your sodium to 13 you want to be hanging on to every ounce of sodium that it sees. So you don't want to see a lot of sodium in the urine. Um, you want the urine to be pretty dilute because you want to be getting rid of a lot of free water because this is a free water problem. So based on that, I think it, it's kind of what you would expect in someone whose kidneys are functioning normally. Um yeah if you have kind of the other end of the spectrum is like an siadh picture and so i don't know if you guys want to talk a little bit about what you think you'd see if it were maybe something that like looked a little bit more like siadh all of the water right but would this fit a picture of someone who has like the reverse like diabetes insipidus no doctor what would you expect it's a good it's a good discussion point what do you like what do you know pathophysiologically about the eye there's two kinds. Mm -hmm. There's nephrogenic and it's central, not responsive to ADH, so then yeah. you'd be like not absorbing water, so your urine would be very dilute. You right. would be excreting right. free water. Yeah. Right. Like, this like a lot of picture. Potentially. What, what do you expect your sodium to do in the, the Oh in, in your sodium would be extremely high because you don't have water to dilute the sodium in your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you're, you're right, looking at these urine, urine looks, since the, the yeah. urine looks the right. same. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's the sodium that would make it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I know, just being able to like understand, you're like, okay, I know that this is what DI is. And then you don't have to memorize any of like the lab findings or anything that goes with it because you can just logically think through it and be like, all right, this is what we would expect with it. So, yeah, I think that that's, those are all really good points. So, yeah, just looking at kind of everything that we have so far. Do you want to summarize just... And where you think we are with the case and with the labs that we have. Yeah. So I can kind of do the first. Yeah. So again, with the case, this young, seemingly otherwise healthy individual, some history of psychiatric disorder who we don't think is taking any medications, but maybe have not confirmed, big question mark, yeah. who generally their exams seemed very normal, seemed to be having some features of Mania may be erratic. Sorry. And when we got more complete labs, let's see, we talked about the B1 being low, but then the rest of that looked pretty, pretty good. Glucose wasn't elevated. The Utox was negative. And we talked about kind of the low urinose velocity and the serous audio flux. Well, I think that's good. I think it's a really thing to, to stop and try and see one or two sentences. Because now you can start reorganizing response. You guys have talked about so many great things. And now you're saying, okay, so here it is, this one sentence. So what 
What are the things? And what do I know and what don't I? What do I still want to know? Definitely. So I think now we know, okay, we have hyponatremia for sure, right? Yeah. It's not, not with the glucose. It's not too much protein. It's not too much fat. And so now we have these urine studies with urine that's pretty dilute. So kind of going back to all the things that you were thinking about that can cause hyponatremia, which one of those kind of fits with the picture that we have right now? It could be a couple. It doesn't have to be just. But Emma Brown or like a psychiatric patient, like drinking a lot of water, psychogenic polydipsia kind of fits this picture where they have a dilute serum and a dilute urine. And so I think the next step would be like, see if they don't drink water for a while and see what happens to their labs and redraw. I think it could still be another problem. Like, we shouldn't get too narrow and say, again, like, it's just a psych issue. Mm -hmm. um, we should make sure, because like you said earlier, Megan, like, less than flipping a coin might be that he's just like, we can't tell but it wouldn't probably cause this urine picture. I think that's a really good point. And also if the urine, I don't know a ton about urine studies and I don't know how much they can kind of like fluctuate if it really changes a lot based on like at what point you get this urinalysis like did the patient get it after he was like given fluids in the ed or you know did he just recently like eat a bunch of french fries or not eat anything for the past 24 hours and like at what point you have to kind of worry about like collecting it or over like a 24-hour period to really get a good picture of it or if just like a one-time checking like the urine electrolytes and osmolality um if that can give you like a pretty good idea so and i think i think especially with this patient who maybe is not able to give a great history or a great idea of kind of the events leading up to their presentation, being extra careful and doing kind of repeat labs would be helpful, repeat checking. And then also, I know you hadn't mentioned Emma in the beginning, is like you, you didn't immediately attribute like the extreme hyponatremia to like the altered because you said like, you know, you want to think about them differently. And I, I thought that was a good point. I think here with like the, the Utox being negative, it's also just like adds more information that like maybe the sodium is like kind of the cause of the altered mental status. And, and then just before we forget, so for Utox, Megan and I were looking this up before because, because, you know, you had mentioned ecstasy. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, so. So with ecstasy, patients lose their ability to regulate their kind of heat. And so they become really thirsty and they drink a lot of water. And, and that's kind of one of the mechanisms for why ecstasy um, can lead to hyponatremia. And in like an altered male with a psychiatric history, that's something you were thinking about. So we actually came to the conclusion that maybe ecstasy, there are some drug screens that don't screen for that. And so like we were thinking maybe it's in the amphetamine class, but we think it's actually maybe separate. We'll have to like look more into that. But also, yeah, for your drug screen, like, if the main drug that you mentioned isn't even on the screen, then that's something to think about too. But like, I would say like, yeah, for these purposes, just saying that there's no, well, yeah, there's no like drugs on board that we know of gives us. Right, great. So I know the big thing we're kind of thinking of is someone that's just taking in too much water. And like most of the time, hyponatremia is like a water problem, um, but there's also kind of like the little bucket of people that just aren't really taking in enough solute. Yeah, so I know you're on site right now, Vina. If you've like seen any of this, but or anything that kind of comes to mind with well, tea and toast, yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, that and the beer potomania are kind yeah. of the two that they love to talk about. Um, so yeah, the teaching is that it's like a water problem, and in that case, they are taking in like too much water, but also taking in like not enough solute. So, um, kind of a combination of the two. Um, just another fun kind of trick that I learned while I was doing a little bit of research for the case is just like a 
fast and dirty way to check the urine osmoles is you can take the last two digits of the urine specific gravity and multiply it by 30 and that gives you like a pretty good approximation of what they are so those are usually tests that you have to kind of send out separate. it's not going to give you like an exact number but if you just want to estimate them it's a little a little trick you can do that grab on this guy would be super very long <laughs> so next aliphatic information so given the altered mental status um, ct head was ordered and this was notable for a hyperdense pituitary mass with supercellular extension concerning for a macro adenoma neurosurgery was consulted and recommended mri self which re-demonstrated the pituitary um, cellular so does this add, subtract, confuse anything um, in your mind? Also, would, yeah, would you guys have ordered a head CT? I, um, like right off the bat, I was also, I wasn't even thinking of that at the beginning. Yeah. I don't, honestly, I don't know that I would have ordered that just based on the, the information given, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we don't have a really clear reason as to why he was altered other than these the sodium in the, these labs that we've gotten. So maybe just because we don't have a great, like super complete picture at this point. But to me, there wasn't anything from kind of the history of the presentation that would make me want to, to order a CT. But also, clearly they did. So they yeah. <laughs> And they found something. So was there. Clearly it was a good call because they did obviously find something. But I probably would not have thought of that. <laughs> I have thought to order a CT head. Maybe I think talking through the different like electrolyte possibilities, maybe if it looked like more of an SIEDH picture, then I would have thought of it because it can be like perineal plastic or like something like in the brain itself. Yeah. Right. But because we kind of, I guess we can't rule it out just based on these current mm -hmm. like findings, but it doesn't seem to fit, mm -hmm. then I, I wouldn't necessarily think there's something in the brain. We also kind of ruled out DI as well mm -hmm. based on this so i wouldn't necessarily think that either i can't really think of any other brain reasons right now yeah maybe a, sh a stroke i guess can cause hyperandromia sometimes mm -hmm. this is a mass <laughs> I don't think it's kind of like an interesting conundrum that they were in because they have this hyponatremia and the patient's altered and it's like okay well they could easily be altered like from the hyponatremia but also, maybe they're dizzy from their hyponatremia and maybe they fell because they're dizzy and stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. I think you can kind of, you could go either way. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe if you like do a pretty good examination of their head and don't see any signs of trauma, you could talk yourself out of it. But they went for it. And so this is what they found. Yeah. Just inter before we like talk about the mass, just intracranially when you're thinking about hyponatremia. So the actual like number one cause of death in these patients is going to be like herniation of the brain. I mean, you, you know, there's some kind of cerebral edema that's, that's happening. So maybe, yeah, maybe to like, just get, just get a sense, like, where's the brainstem in relation to the brain where, you know, is there, is there any midline shift or anything? But yeah, I think in terms of like looking for a specific cause, I think, yeah, we, seems like the sodium was the cause of the altered mental status, but yeah. In terms of like this mass, what do you guys, yeah. What do you guys think about the mass? Megan and I, this kind of had us scratching our heads when we were reading through. I can't wait. Take a step back. Yeah. Forget the case. Yeah. You're just given a patient with this. What do you think? They have a brain mass. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. It's sort of like, yeah, pituitary adenoma, yeah. black denoma. And uncommon. Is it common or what is, is it common? I mean, it's the it's more common of those. Yeah. But I mean, thinking of the pituitary hormones, like growth hormone, LH, FSH, mm -hmm. like ACTH, then a I mean, 
I guess ACTH can play around with electrolytes, but potassium is normal, which doesn't make me think of like an adrenal issue. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously, like I said, the lactin, and then ADH. I mean, there's very rarely like a TSH issue when it comes to pituitary abnormal. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We can't tell if he has a TSH issue, I guess. <laughs> So yeah, basically what you guys are saying is that based on where the anatomy of this lesion is, you're thinking of all the hormones that are released from there. You're not, you're saying that there might not be an explanation for why the sodium is low based on those, those hormones. I think that, that's like really, that's like good thinking there, even taking the anatomy, like the functional side of it. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. And I think prolactinoma is like the first thing that comes to our head because that is the most common of like the adrenal adenomas. In terms of the functional ones, or even have a non-functional one, just means that it's not secreting hormones, and most of the time can be kind of like impinging on nearby structures, and so can like decrease the secretions of some of the hormones. But I think you guys did a really good job of kind of going through all the different hormones and being like, okay, it could do this, but like, is that explaining what we're seeing? And so, yeah, I think that's just kind of like one of the best things that you can do in medicine, because a lot of times you do end up getting studies, um, and you find things on there that you just weren't expecting to find, and now you're like okay, well, now I have this information and I really don't know what to do with it because it doesn't necessarily, like, explain what's going on. But also, I need to make sure that I really take the time to, like, think through it and kind of piece everything together, so. Right. And I think it's also just all these different pieces of information, trying to, on one hand, see if we can connect them all, and on the other hand, give them all their own separate attention and work them up separately at the same time, which is sometimes a little, a little difficult to do. Yeah, it's um, tempting to sometimes try to fork information, based on the information you have, right. which is also one of the reasons why, you know, ordering a bunch of things is not always like the best call because then you're stuck with the responsibility of explaining it when sometimes there really is no relevant explanation and you're just going to make more work for yourself. That's good. <laughs> uh, I think he's really unlucky though. He just has this random pituitary mass. And I mean, yeah, it's like, it, it doesn't seem likely that it's like the same ideology, but dang, that sucks. So yeah, my understanding is like in terms of pituitary adenomas, they are one of the more common, I think, lesions that you see in the brain. Most of the times are benign. So kind of found incidentally, a lot of times people go looking for other things and end up just seeing them. So. But yeah, when you find something like this, you always have to consider that it could be malignant because there are some like pituitary carcinomas and then just, yeah, thinking through all the different, like the pituitary does everything. And so just really thinking through all of the different kind of physiology of everything and making sure that there's nothing that you're missing. I guess you guys probably would know this better than I do. The definition of macroadenoma is 0.5 centimeters. Is that, I, I, somehow that number sticks in my brain, but it, I probably heard it 30 years ago. I'm looking at said greater than one center. I'm sure I don't so you may be right. The other thing is, is that, you know, going back to diabetes insipidus with pituitary adenoma, mm -hmm. so it's possible, right? Because it compresses yeah. the, mm -hmm. it, because that comes from the posterior pituitary. Yeah. Every, most of the hormones we think of come from yeah. the anterior pituitary, right? And so this would be compressing that posterior pituitary stalk. But of course, the hyponatremia mm -hmm. is the... Right. It yeah. sort of yeah. leads you potentially away from that, yeah. but certainly a mass could cause diabetes. Another thing Nick and I think we're thinking of when we were reading through this was like, 
Is it somehow affecting just like the thirst regulation and the hypothalamus or yeah, something? Right. Um, I mean, it's hard to say for sure. Just kind of by looking at it, there's like a supercellular <laughs> extension. My brain anatomy is like not great. So, you know, I don't know exactly how that could involve like the hypothalamus and if that actually could have an effect on it. And I feel like probably clinically the best way to go about assessing that is to like just treat them as you would someone else with hypomnatremia and see if it gets better or worse. But yeah, when Nick and I were trying to piece everything together, that was something that seemed yeah, and those microadenomas, so ones that are like less than um, a centimeter, those tend to be the ones that are like functional or producing hormones. The, the macroadenomas are the bigger ones. They can be functional, but they tend to be like non-functional and have more of those like compressive yeah, massive mass symptoms. symptoms. Right. Yeah. yeah. He's on it. He wasn't having any eye stuff, was he? Why? Like visual? Why do you, why do you ask? Oh, because of bi-temporal. It's a good question. We'll get back to the answer. So the next aliquot, we have all of the hormones over here. Um, so we got a cortisol, which was normal, 9.2, ACTH, 39.9, also normal. Prolactin was 6, the normal being less than 440. FSH, LH, GH, all normal. Testosterone, also normal. And then the TSH, free T4, normal. And then they had ophthalmology, CM, and they confirmed that there are, in fact, no visual field deficit. So what are you thinking based on all of this? Well, it seems, obviously, at this point, less likely that it's some sort of functional mass. But I think, obviously, if you do find it, even if it ends up being in some dental finding, you obviously need to, to work it up. And also, that can give the patient some sense of mind or some peace of mind because it's a really alarming thing to be mm-hmm. told yeah. um, that you had you know, a mass in your brain. But yeah, at this point, with all of those within, that makes it less likely. And then also the fact, like Bina was talking about, that there are no visual steel deficits, then at least, you know, it's not resting kind of the optics pictures in that area. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It's like you tell someone that you found something in their brain and they kind of like stop listening to everything you say after. Uh, it's very scary. Yeah, what you tell them after is like most likely going to be, you know, this is something that's relatively common and benign, but regardless, something that like needs follow up. And so I think that's probably one of the harder parts of like hospital medicine is like you go and you work all this up and like you find all these pulmonary nodules or liver nodules and like these are all things that like need to be followed up on an outpatient basis. And so being able to like communicate that to the patient, making sure that they're like getting the follow-up they, they need for it, even if it's not something that's like kind of acutely causing the symptoms that they're having now. Yeah, I think from here, we can kind of like analyzing without any of like the functional tumors like we talked about earlier. And it doesn't seem like any of the hormonal imbalances, if they were present, would cause this picture of electrolyte imbalance anyway mm-hmm. at this time. So I think we need to probably start treating the hypomotrium. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. That's a perfect segue. But well, I guess real quick before we say, even though I said it was a perfect segue. <laughs> We, Megan and I, were also just kind of thinking about it because we talk about ADH so much uh, as a hormone. And like, we're looking at all these hormonal models and like, why was it ADH here? And like, ADH isn't really like a lab value that we get. Like the molecule itself has a half-life 24 minutes and it's not routinely measured. So we have to kind of take other information in order to determine the ADH status of the body. It can't be measured as, as like a lab. And so something the um, nephrologists really like, because like I said, like you have SIADH, you want to like the first thought would be like, okay, well, let's check the ADH level, but it's not something routinely done. So they use the ceramuric acid as a good indicator of SIADH. And so like a lot of times if you have 
So like SIADH, you'd expect the urine to be really concentrated. And so you can either see that in like SIADH or someone that's just like really intravascularly depleted. But for the patients that are intravascularly depleted, you expect their serum uric acid to be high because they're in like a state of, you know, low intravascular volume. The body's trying to reabsorb it. But for SIADH, for reasons I think that they don't fully know, um, the serum uric acid is actually pretty low. Um, so that's a good test that they kind of order pretty routinely actually for hyponatremic patients where they're concerned about SIADH. And that kind of helps guide their management. Walk us through what you think the final diagnosis is before we give you a little bit more. I think we're going to go with, um, <laughs> uh, like, too much free water consumption. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that we kind of have walked through looking at a lot of the other causes. We've talked about other electrolytes and talked about kidney causes, and we had this incidental finding that kind of <laughs> <laughs> threw us off track and we're all crawling out, which was good uh, and very helpful. But, yeah, I think coming back to that initial thought, just based on... The urine study, the, the sodium, and then also, you know, this psychiatric history, definitely. And again, it's for me, you know, the fact that he's kind of an otherwise healthy, younger guy. I'll kind of support, kind of put that diagnosis on top for me. I really like how you laid that out. So just a little bit more information. The patient's legal guardian was contacted and provided further collateral history. Uh, the patient had been living with, with his aunt cousin, recently stopped taking his psych medications and disappeared from the home. For collateral history, the patient um, had been drinking approximately 12 16-ounce water bottles per day, as well as a significant amount of soda and coffee. And so, you guys got it. Primary polydipsia was the diagnosis. Uh, I think you guys win the award for clinching the diagnosis faster than him. But uh, yeah, so, like, a really interesting case, I think. And... Yeah, I think there's like just a ton to learn from it. I agree. I feel like the joke about internal medicine is that we all do, like love Zegian. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, and, guys, it's a slow one for that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, and it's true. I mean, I think it's so much fun just thinking through there's so many different things that it could be. And so you have to look at the urine and the seromalsmolality and yeah, just so many different picture or pieces of like the history um, and lab studies that go into it. And so, yeah, we have a lot of fun going through all of it and presenting it to you. You guys are wonderful. So. Congratulations on getting it. Thank you. <laughs> You're very accomplished. <laughs> Thank you for all these clinical pearls. And yeah. now we're going to know so much about Zoom <laughs> when we go to internal medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Slow everyone away. I forgot you guys have your flat iron. We have We'll rot them all to you. <laughs> yeah, just for our listeners' knowledge, our two discussants haven't even done their internal medicine clerkship yet. And their reasoning skill. I think the only other thing I'm kind of, I didn't, I had thought about that. I recently learned reviewing for this case is we think of hyponatremia and sodium, but it's really an osmolality issue more than it is an actual sodium as an ion electrolyte issue. Because sodium is our best marker surrogate for serum osmolality. So a true hyponatremia is because they're hypoosmolar and talked about how that, you know, cerebral edema ultimately leading to herniation as being the catastrophic consequence. So I think Megan, in this great case, you guys did amazing. Love to hear your reasoning. It's just so fun from our perspective just to sit back and listen. I think Megan and Nick did a great job hosting and they're going to walk teaching points now. Yeah, we got a couple quick teaching points. I feel like we covered a lot of it just talking through everything, but I did a lot of nephrology research while I was preparing this because no matter how many times you try to understand sodium, you still realize that 
the nephrologists are wizards and none of this makes any sense. But anyway, I did try to do a little bit of learning um, and just kind of understanding because my thought was this does seem like primary polydipsia, but like maybe is there a little aspect of like a tantos something going on as well? And so I was reading a little bit just about kind of how that all works and why you see the hyponatremia um, with like the tea and toast diet and the beer ponomania. And so basically for those patients, you're just consuming like beer or tea, um, which is carbohydrates. And so carbohydrates are just like metabolized to carbon dioxide and water. And so they were joking. They're like, for a nephrologist, a bowl of spaghetti is basically free water because anytime you're just like metabolizing carbs, you're basically just giving your body free water. And so your kidneys are great as long as they're kind of normal, healthy functioning kidneys at regulating like your serum osmolality. Um, and kind of excreting your osmolar load for the day. Um, and so usually it's like 10, 10 milliosmoles per kilogram is what you can expect for like a normal kind of American diet. So for like a 60 kilogram person, you can expect them to take in like 600 milliosmoles a day. And then your kidneys can produce here and that's either really dilute or really concentrated depending on like how much water you're drinking. But they can only kind of do that like within certain bounds. So they can produce urine as dilute as like 60 milliosmoles per kilogram or as concentrated as like 12. And so what that means is like there's kind of like a maximum amount of urine that you can kind of put out in a day. And so if you're taking in less solute, you're just not going to be able to put out as much urine despite how much fluid you're drinking. And so that's kind of where the issue comes with becoming hyponatremic is that you need that solute load to be able to create urine. Otherwise, you just end up retaining all of this water. Um, and so same thing kind of on the other end of the spectrum. You can only create urine that's like so concentrated. And then after that, you just end up becoming like hypernatremic. So that was something that I found really interesting and just kind of being able to understand a little bit more about like why you see those electrolyte range. And, and Megan, as you, if you have renal insufficiency, yeah. those, yeah. those, those, yeah. those boundaries or whatever start shrinking. Yeah, and so that's for normal kidneys, but any like dialysis patients, unstayed renal patients, any water they're drinking is basically just diluting their serum osmolality. So something that you have to be really careful about. The next thing we kind of just wanted to go over was primary polydipsia itself. And like, so just generally with this disorder, um, it's a disorder in which patients just have a primary increase in thirst, and it's usually associated with uh, psychiatric um, illness or psychiatric conditions. So there was a, a study that was cited of 239 hospitalized patients with mental illness and found that 6.6% of them had some history compatible with compulsive water drinking and half those had intermittent symptoms of hyponatremia. The mechanism is not fully understood but presumed to be a central defect in thirst regulation and so what happens is essentially these people usually have normally functioning kidneys but they drink so much water that it exceeds the capacity of even normally functioning kidneys to excrete um, the water so we say that uh, normal patients can excrete about 400 to 600 milliliters of urine an hour at their like maximum rate. So if you drink more water than that, um, then you're just even you're just not going to be able to excrete it at a fast enough rate. And so this is what's going to lead to essentially diluting your your body volume and driving that sodium level down. When we think about patients who have psychiatric illness, there are a lot of complications related to ADH secretion and regulation that can come complicate things. So for example, like there are many antipsychotics in Ovini, I mentioned like SSRIs can cause like SIADH, but also other yeah, antipsychotics can cause it in patients who take that tend to be psychiatric. And then the, and yeah, so for like a lower sodium concentration might be required to shut off um, ADH these patients. And then regarding treatment, so it can be tricky because like, for example, this patient, we don't know exactly what it is causing. So you want to treat the sodium. 
But if you know the diagnosis is primary polydipsia, then really the treatment is just to restrict them from drinking water, which, you know, when you have a sodium that's that low, generally when patients are symptomatic and their sodium is like less than 120, you want to give like hypertonic saline. But this is like one of the few exceptions to that because their kidneys are functioning normally. And if you overtreat, you can drive their sodium up too fast and cause some like pontine lesions. Yeah, so it depends on if they're asymptomatic or symptoms. So like for asymptomatic patients, I think you still don't want to go up by more than 12 a day. But I was listening to, so it's like half a milliequivalent um, an hour. But I was listening to a nephrologist earlier who said he just like shoots for six a day because if you overshoot, you're still like way like below the limit. And for those patients that are asymptomatic, like the way you're going to hurt them is by correcting it too fast. Like with their hyponatremia now, they're not maybe like a little dizzy if they get up, but otherwise they're like doing pretty well. So you could cause damage by correcting it too fast, but if you do it too slow, like they're just gonna kind of stay where they are. So, and then the patients that are symptomatic, I think I was hearing you want to do like five in the first hour and maybe 10 going on like the rest of the day after that, but I would have to double check. But yeah, going either direction, either from like hypernatremia back to becoming like you or isoosmotic or hypo to iso, you still, you want to be careful because either way there can be pretty serious consequences with all the fluid shifts. So certainly the bottom line is these patients should be in the ice because they need to be monitored really, really carefully because can harm them by correcting them too fast. And, uh, you know, I, again, you guys correct me. I, I always think of this term central pontine myelinosis. That's the, that's the, the, the term for the damage that you do if you correct them. I know I've seen at least one in my there's yeah. things you're, that's palliative paralysis of upward gaze. They get, they get gaze disturbances. You're on neurology. You should remember all that. Yeah, oh, I think I don't think it, like, the full log bit. Yeah. yeah, which is just very scary. There, there's that memory tool for correcting. It's like yeah. low to high, your pons will die. Yeah. High to low, your brains will blow. So meaning <laughs> you get the, you get the central pont, pontine myelinolysis when you overcorrect a low sodium. But when you, but you also want to be careful about overcorrecting high sodium to low because then you can get three. Um, another pearl I picked up and reviewing for this, the nephrologists are tricky and they love their physiology. And I've, I've seen this and never thought about it any further, but on in patients with hyponatremia, especially when the etiology is not certain in the moment and you're like, you're already treating it. This patient would have been treated while diagnosis is still in her way. They, they give DDAVB concomitantly with needs and it, just to hear that it's kind of counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it's kind of, it's actually fascinating. And it basically ensures that your body's at the maximum amount of ADH. So you're making the solution a bit simpler. So you're not allowing your body to produce urine in that sense. And it just allows for tighter control. So it's, 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 they call it the DDAVP clamp or DDAVP lock and it just ensures that you avoid overcorrecting too quickly when you don't entirely know what the cause is because patients like this one with primary polydipsia or beer photomania, you give them normal saline, they can, their sodium can shoot up. They're the quickest to respond. So it's just a, a safety mechanism. Yeah, especially with like the beer potomania and like the tea and toast, they're just not used to having that high of like an osmolar load. So you give it to them and their kidneys just dump out a bunch of urine. So you can shoot their sodium up really quickly, which obviously is can be really detrimental. So, and then just another kind of interesting pearl, um, just like a lot of times these patients are walking in and you're not sure is this polydipsia, is it SIADH? Um, 
So if you give normal saline for SIADH patients, they have the ability to concentrate their urine to like such high degrees that you're basically just like giving them free water and it can actually worsen my hyponatremia. So just being like really careful with the fluids for these people. Sometimes I'll do like really small kind of normal saline challenges just to see how they respond to it. But you wouldn't want to like bowl as a patient with normal saline because you run the risk of worsening. And also if you look at like some, if you like look up online, like treatment algorithms of, of these, of hyponatremia, a lot of, one of the major branch points for a lot of them is like, is it acute hyponatremia or is it chronic? And so like, sometimes it's hard to tell. So, but if you know, if you know that it's really acute, then theoretically you can correct it faster because your body hasn't learned how to live at like a lower in your versus if you're living at, you know, let's say you're living in like the one twenties, your body's kind of adjusted. It's, it's like osmostat to that level because the brain kind of learns to just like throw out osmos out of its cells to prevent them from swelling. And so it can prevent like the symptoms of, of like cerebral edema and hyponatremia. So they can, so yeah, that's just kind of one of the, the things to also think about in terms of like correcting if it's chronic hyponatremia and symptomatic, it can be a little uh, trickier. Really good. With the girl, she had like always like 129, like, and then she dropped down to 125, but she was also delirious from something else. So then teasing out whether it was due to like the the drop from a chronic hypodidrate versus like a de other delirium launcher. Yeah. yeah, it's never easy. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. This is an awesome episode. Well, then I've got some oh, stuff yeah. to stay here. Because we haven't got to what I found to be the most interesting part of this case. And I'm talking about the case now. And so the story with this guy is he was found downtown actually punching and so they've punched the walls of some stores downtown. So it was actually brought here by the, okay? and comes into the hospital and all this, it goes to the ICU, all this stuff. And they correct his soap. And I'm talking to him, by the way, when I get him, the neurosurgeons are still very concerned about this, this mass and really feel that he needs to have his pituitary, he needs to have this abnormal removed because it's going to put his, even though his visual fields are at risk. It's going it, to, it, his visual fields are calm. And I remember talking to this patient and he's telling me about how he's the CEO of a company in New York and he takes the bus every day from Chicago to New York. So it was unclear to me if his mental status was really due to his. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it got to me, the interesting question was, Surgeons had consented him to remove, to do a, to remove his pituitary tumor. My question was whether he really could consent to the yeah. procedure. Given right. that yeah. he had, right. given that he had this, you know, this, whatever. And, he, and actually, I think, and you could answer me this question, Nick, and that is what psychiatric diseases, if you look at the gamut of psychiatric diseases, which one is most commonly associated with primary polydipsia? Because there is an answer to that also. And it is schizophrenia is, is the one that is most often. Other ones do it, but schizophrenia is the common one to do that. And so can you consent a actively psychotic patient to a surgical procedure, which they were happy to do <laughs> because they were about to take him. And I said, wait a minute, you guys can't do that. Yeah. And he needs to be treated first. And, and I actually had to say, I put a lot of pressure was I did get the psychiatrist to, to say that. Because I thought it was, I, I actually thought it was unethical to, 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 to take him 
until you made an effort to at least treat his, treat his, his psychiatric disease. So I, I, I had to put those, my two cents in on that because I also found that to be a really interesting part of this case. And we assumed that his mental status was due to his sodium. And I, I didn't see him when he came in, but I, I really couldn't be sure that that, that was yeah. actually, that's actually interesting because Megan and I were talking about how he was like punching out windows. And when we think about like you, an altered from sodium, you think of it more as like a comatose. Yeah. Just yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah, but this patient is, yeah, that seems more sodium. Yeah. So that's also, he was really, you know, to, to his credit and everything he was, you know, he was good. He was on a fluid restriction. He, you know, he had somebody sitting with him, but yeah. you know, we always talked about, I want to go back in water. I want to go back in water, but, but he was not, he was actually really, actually, yeah, I thought he was kind of a really sort of one, but he was, you know, he'd stopped all of his medicines yeah. and that really was probably more the cause of his mental status changes. And we got hung up on his, we got hung up on his sodium, <laughs> which we probably used to because it was chronic, right? Living there for years. <laughs> right. Okay. You guys can be finished now. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that. That was wonderful. And thank you guys for being on the episode. So nice to have you on here. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening. And see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.